podcast is brought to you by CEW Plus at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor as we work to serve our community during this unprecedented time of change. Resiliency is best demonstrated in times of challenges. Join CEW Plus Director Tiffany Mara as she talks to students, staff, faculty, and community members connected to the University of Michigan's Center for the Education of Women Plus in our podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change. Today's podcast features Corey Pauling, who graduated from the University of Michigan in 1993 with a bachelor's degree in industrial and operations engineering. She also holds a Juris Doctorate degree from Northwestern University School of Law. Corey is Senior Vice President, Chief Inclusion and Diversity Officer, and Head of Corporate Social Responsibility at TIA. Corey, welcome to the Strength in the Midst of Change podcast. Could you please tell us about yourself and your journey to U of M? Certainly, and thank you for the opportunity to talk today. I am always a little surprised that my path is one that may be inspiring for some. As I reflect on it even now, so much of the twists and turns and wonderful opportunities in my life have stemmed from my time at the University of Michigan. And reflecting on all of these years now, I do hope there is a lesson or a story or a takeaway that may help someone along their journey. So thank you for having me today. Oh, of course. Having heard you speak at the Women of Color Task Force Conference, I have no doubt that listeners will be inspired by you. Well, thank you. Yeah, Can you um, share how those around you in your path influenced you and your work? I would love to. The first influence that I would want to share is that of my grandmother, whose name I like to say when I'm talking and going about the work that I do because I think it's a way of honoring her. Her name was Clara May Jennings Meeks. She was born in Sardis, Mississippi in 1917 and made her way to Detroit with my grandfather, my beloved grandfather, where they settled on what would eventually be the east side of Detroit, Helen Street, Helen and Mack Avenue, not too far from Belle Isle. And of course, reared my mother and her six siblings. Over the course of my childhood, my grandmother and I were the very best of friends. If you saw her, you saw me and vice versa. And what she instilled in me are things that literally every day today are part of how I show up, what's important to me, what I believe in, what I think my capabilities are. It comes from those times with her where I learned the value of wisdom and confidence and caring and respect. I learned the love of puzzles and maps and word games and math, things that from a technical standpoint also helped catapult me at points where that comfort with both qualitative and quantitative, combined to help me in whatever I might be doing, whether it was an employment discrimination case, a settlement, whether it was looking at statistics related to equity issues in the workforce, or whether it was way back when I did consulting before I went to law school as a manufacturing systems consultant in Winnipeg, Manitoba, for an international firm. And of course, in that context, would have been doing a lot of things that were more on the engineering side. And uh, all of that, I attribute to some of those foundational moments with her where she was teaching me skills that I had no idea would serve me so well over the course of my life. So I have to start with my grandmother. I would also say that a major influence in my life was my father, who passed away in 2016, and with whom I had a very difficult relationship. He passed away over several months, and over the course of that time, he and I were able to get to a point of understanding and reconciliation that I think is really important. It makes me miss him now for the presence that I think he would have in my life at some pretty critical moments. But before he passed away, I think I felt what it means to be 
daddy's little girl, at least for those few months. And I think that's an important feeling for a daughter to have. So I'm grateful for that. And then lastly, I would say that another big influence for me growing up was my elementary school librarian, Dorothea Hunter. And Dorothy was an older white woman who was the librarian in an Eastside public school in Detroit, probably 99% black school. And she was just profoundly committed to reading and words and analytical capabilities, writing. And I was one of her favorite students. We spent a lot of time together. I was her library and assistant. And through my adult life, we stayed in touch. She was always a big fan. Once I had children, she sent books to them signed by the author, children's books signed by the various authors that she had compiled over the years. And I'm so thankful for what she apparently saw in me because that experience, I think, was also critical to relationship building and an optimism about the goodness in people and also the value of teachers and the impact that they can make on one's life. Sounds like these were amazingly influential people and, you know, learning about them and how they instilled in you such values early, especially qualitative and quantitative skills, you know, compassion, reconciliation, mentorship. How have those values carried forward in your relationships in the workplace or in your personal life? Oh, wow. Well, it's probably easier to start in the workplace. You know, people often say that being an engineer and then going to law school and then being a litigator and now being an HR professional leading inclusion, equity, diversity, corporate social responsibility for, you know, an international company is an interesting combination of dissimilar fields. And I actually say that it's not true. What is true is the commonality that my career path shows is a focus on problem solving, a focus on resolution and creativity, a focus on representing someone's interests, often someone whose voice is perhaps not heard or who isn't going to be the one that is read about in the books, but plays a significant role in whatever the task at hand is. And so whether I've been a manufacturing systems consultant or an employment law attorney or a chief inclusion, diversity, equity, and corporate social responsibility officer, those skills, those values, that passion are part of that. And I think that's what I bring to it. I honestly see some of the work that I do right now as civil rights work Mm -hmm. because I am helping my organization be the very best that it can for the workforce, for its own brand and for its clients. And especially today that involves thinking about those spaces where there are inequity or those spaces where we do need to have a better policy or practice or those situations where we need to speak up and speak out about something that we know isn't right. And I count all of that as a blessing. And all of that has that fundamental layer of reinforcing the things that were infused in me as a child. And again, for which I'm tremendously grateful. Personally, I would say that the foundation from my childhood for what's really important and the skills that I've built have both helped and hurt. Uh, I'm the mother of two daughters. One is a sophomore in high school from her home, this house. She's upstairs right now. (laughs) And the other is actually at Spelman. She did not want to go north to school 
and so couldn't get her to apply to the University of Michigan. Loss for <laughs> us, know. for sure, I have no doubt. <laughs> yeah, I tried. But she's in Atlanta, and after having her first semester be virtual, was able to get on campus this year, and she is living her best life. And I'm so happy for her. She's doing wonderfully and is a future doctor, so couldn't be prouder. My daughters are, as many parents will say, the most important thing in my life. I saw pregnancy, I see childbirth, I see parenting as a miracle and a blessing. The capacity of a woman's body to nurture life, grow life, feed life, give life, and then sort of help, you know, expose life to this world and then off they go. You know, it is a tremendous undertaking. And I don't think that people obviously realize that before it's done. You often think about, oh, what do I want to name my children or, you know, what color will their nursery be or, you know, that type of thing. But gosh, the responsibility of parenting is nonstop. And I truly try to cherish every moment. I am a chronic photographer and scrapbooker. What I do every year is I compile photos that I take for the whole year and then do one scrapbook covering the whole year. And I'm behind right now. But if someone says, what could you just sit there and do and look up and it's 12 hours later, I could, that for me could be online scrapbooking. <laughs> and the books that I end up doing are 100 pages um, oh, for the wow. year. Uh-huh. Yes, yes. And I'm saying that because I'm finishing one right now. My purpose in doing that is because it helps my children. It helps me reflect on the tremendous blessing of the time spent, the moment shared, and the love. And reinforcement for my girls that we are pouring into them, you know, everything that we possibly can and, and that they have a view of their childhood that hopefully will help them as they eventually grow into motherhood themselves. Moments that you'll want people to remember and cherish. I think you have to be very intentional about that. And for me, through photography, I do that. Down the road, one of the things I'd like to do is do travel-based photography or photography-based travel and, you know, just sort of get out in the world and do my best to capture some just jaw-dropping shots. So the approach to parenting is shaped by those early foundational experiences, including the permission for my daughters to not be strong and to not be independent and to not have the, I got this attitude at every moment because I want them to know that as I actually had to learn based on my relationship with my dad, that it's hard and it's heavy to always carry that. Mm -hmm. I want them to know that they can come home. They can fail. They can need to ask for something. They don't have to try to take care of everything all the time or think that they have to have everything under control. I want them to give themselves the freedom to be vulnerable and to allow others to care for them. And that's something that I've had to learn in a lot of ways over the course of these years. But I definitely want my children to understand that that mix is what helps them be a whole person and true to themselves. Uh, Now, this past year has been a doozy for all of us. If you don't mind, like a lot of the people who are listening are student parents. What types of things have you done for your daughters to help them kind of survive this past year and be resilient through it? You know, one of the things that was truly a silver lining about 2020, and by no means am I suggesting that it was a good year in any respect. I think we had a lot of hopes and dreams about 2020 and the start of a new decade and how cool it sounded and it turned out to be just, you know, it turned out to just be the year of, oh my gosh, what is going on here? But I will say this, 2020 allowed us to remember the important things. Mm -hmm. It didn't even allow it. It demanded that we Mm -hmm. remember the important things. 
the moments that we might have grown through before, the things that we might have declined to participate in, or if we were, we wouldn't have done it with the attention and the energy that it needed. We will now approach every family reunion, every trip to auntie's house for (laughs) some dish, you know, Uh occasion, every shower, baby shower, other shower, you're playing those silly games, parent teacher conferences. I mean, things that we have been denied for some time. I think we're craving, I think literally anything that we can celebrate (laughs) in the coming years will become an all out party. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I think there's going to be a lot of dancing and music and drinking and, you know, sundresses and sunshine and just wonderful times because we have all learned the necessity for togetherness and the creating of memories and making sure that we participate fully in those moments that we might have otherwise taken for granted. So long-term, that's a good reinforcement. That's a good reminder about the important things in life. In terms of for my children, some of the particular things that stood out is I don't know that I've ever been on so many walks or gone on so many picnics (laughs) than in 2020. And these are things that with two teenagers, I don't know that that would have been on the top of their list to do either with me. (laughs) But we found ourselves walking, evening walks, grabbing a blanket and going over to, you know, a patch of grass and sitting down and having ice cream or, you know, playing games, doing TikTok videos, you know, all these moments that I don't believe would have happened, at least not like that. And certainly not with the frequency, but for the circumstances of the year. And so those informal, casual, inexpensive light moments where you can just get in a bubble with your kids, I think are invaluable. And for me, there is a commonality there in terms of doing things outside. I do think that some of the stressors that parents in particular have felt due to the pandemic have been because for many, they have been sort of locked in a house or a home for hours and hours on end, working, helping with school, you know, trying to keep the house going, cooking, just everybody in one place, kind of bouncing into each other after a point. One of the things that I have learned over the years for me is the meditation and renewal that comes from being outdoors. It's just sort of breathing and listening to the sounds, listening to the birds, you know, looking at the sky, looking at the clouds, you know, saying a prayer in whatever way one may do that quietly. Those are all things that I do. I am a runner. So I find a lot of value in moments outdoors and sort of the energy that comes from that. Also, last year, hiking, waterfalls, things like that. Nature is just absolutely breathtaking in so many respects. And while I think we were probably more inclined to spend an afternoon at the mall with our children or at the movies with our children in years past, a number of us, I believe, found these new outdoor resources that weren't on our sort of top five list, but are accessible and again, inexpensive. And it's just a matter of getting there. So I say to parents, allow those moments to occur where you're outside, your kids are outside and both you and they are running freely. It can be a really special time and take some photos while you do it. Don't take too many. Don't get so involved in it that all you're doing is taking pictures and sort of you're not helping the moment by trying to stage the moment but get some photos that you can scrapbook about it later, but get in that moment, dive right in and just play and enjoy them. 
Yeah, it sounds like you found untapped resources as a part of COVID. I mean, I've heard you talk about untapped talent in the past. Can you tell me what that means in the workplace? Absolutely. When I presented at the CEW conference a couple of weeks ago, and extremely honored to have been asked to do that, that was really special because of my relationship with University of Michigan. I have to tell the story about how I applied and ended up there, but it was really a wonderful honor to have been asked to speak. You know, I do a fair bit of speaking at different conferences. It's sort of part of my job. And for the University of Michigan, I, I really wanted to dig deep and draw that connection. And as I shared during the conference, I ended up finding that message that enabled me to speak from the heart, connect it to home, and connect it to the message of inclusion and equity. And this idea of finding untapped talent. The story that I told in brief stemmed from my grandmother who passed away in 1991. And with this being 2021, it's been three decades since I lost her. Yet I had not ever visited her grave site because I did not want to think of her in that way. So as I turned 50 this year, one of the commitments I made is that when I went home to Detroit, that I would go visit my grandmother and spend some time there. Well, long story short, got to Detroit in late February. One can imagine that it's snowy and cold and it's probably not the most opportune time to go in search of a gravestone. And that proved to be true. I ended up not being able to find her gravestone. I had to get help from family members. We were all wandering around the cemetery trying to find the location. And, you know, there's debris and there's litter, there's leaves, there's mud, there's snow patches. Fortunately, it was a sunshiny day, which was a blessing because at a point of real frustration when I thought I would not be able to find her where she lay, felt the sun shining on the left side of my face. And at that point, I was telling myself that, that I was going to just have to give up and just sort of, you know, have that moment just wherever I was. But I felt the sunshine on the left side of my face. And I looked up and then I looked to my right and there was this cheese wrapper that I had seen as I had been walking around. I was actually annoyed by it because I didn't want my grandmother to be in a cemetery that was in not so great condition. And it turned out when I looked at the Cheez-Its wrapper, it was sort of wedged in the leaves in a way that I had come to learn indicated that there were gravestones. Given the condition of the cemetery, there were leaves and just a buildup, a lot of stuff, mulch and all these things. So literally three steps to my right is this wrapper. And so I just, I walked over and again, I'm very frustrated at this point. I used the heel of my boot to kind of start moving the leaves away. And I saw 1917, and then I saw the word May, and my heart literally jumped out of my chest. I was so happy. I called to my Aunt Jerry, who was walking around trying to find a gravestone, too, that I thought I had found her, and that, that's where she was. And so we got on our knees and got pretty wet doing that and, you know, moved the leaves away, and my grandfather was very right next to her. And so I saw both of their gravestones and I had a really powerful moment. One that I will always remember just spending some time saying thank you and allowing the sun to shine on my face as I told her that I loved her and how much I missed her and how much I appreciate everything she did for me. And I am so grateful for that pause and for that Jesus wrapper that I had originally disregarded and saw only as trash. I did not see its value. Even though I had seen how the leaves would, again, pile up on grass versus on the gravestones, it was a different way in which it seemed to pile. But I did not see its value. I just judged it immediately. And, you know, I think there is an analogy there 
in the sense of how sometimes we can judge, dismiss, devalue, diminish, silence things that are unfamiliar to us or things that don't fit an image. I think that we are very quick to assess and dismiss or to assess and open ourselves. And what that moment taught me is that you you have to look deeper. That first reaction is probably not the one that you want to fully rely on. I do believe in this thing of gut instinct and, you know, trusting your judgment and that sort of thing. So not everything is something where you have the liberty of thinking about it for an hour. But with that said, we have to be aware of how, especially as it relates to how we receive people and experiences, that everyone brings value and perspective to a situation, even if they're doing it in a way that is challenging in some respect, there's value. And even if the value isn't clear, we have to have the maturity and calm and perspective to at least be open to it. So when I told that story at the CEW conference, one of the things that stood out for me is I talk about inclusion, equity, diversity, and community every day. And so I should know better. And I think sometimes those of us who are closest to this work can lose sight of the small nudges, the small lessons that really do reveal that we are all continuing to grow. Nobody's an expert at this. It is something you have to practice and be committed to trying to make how you show up literally every day. Because even with the best of intentions with this work, you can lose sight and miss out on those opportunities of a lifetime, such as that moment that I was able to share with my deceased grandmother because I finally saw that beacon saying she's right here. Mm -hmm. As a person who supervises um, and hires, how do I or other people recognize uh, non-traditional talent or skills or opportunities for growth for individuals, which all lead to diversity and inclusion and equity. But what are some first steps that we can take or specific actions that we can take to build that skill and capacity? So the first thing I would say is that with respect to talent, the need has to be fairly evaluated. What I mean by that is in the process of hiring for many years and for purposes of efficiency. So it's not that it was a bad motive, but for purposes of efficiency and consistency, you know, there would be sort of a set of requirements for a job, say, you know, a certain number of years of experience, certain educational standards, a certain type of skill set. And it certainly makes sense. You have to have both qualitative and quantitative aspects of what you need to get done clearly established and it does have to be applied consistently and fairly but every manager every leader I think really has to evaluate what do I need for this position do I need someone with six plus years if someone had four years would that be completely unacceptable what if someone didn't have a degree but had been here for 10 years working in the space. So I think you have to really challenge yourself to be open to talent in uncommon packages, meaning that you may not have sort of this superstar, perfect resume candidate. And you also want to think about the skills that people bring because more than likely they're going to be part of a team and so you want that mix. You might have the person with that perfect resume, but it probably would be good for that person to work with someone whose career path is a little grittier, maybe a little scrappy. They've had to kind of hustle with it. They've learned sort of on the job. Maybe their life experience is such that, you know, there are some things that they're bringing to the table, to the conversation about how to solve a problem or come up with a new idea differently. 
the mix of sort of that talent and other types of talent makes for a richer discussion once that team is assembled and you're trying to get work done. So tapping into untapped talent requires a commitment at the hiring stage. It's not something that you can talk about being committed to, but still only hire certain molds or from certain schools or from certain experience sets. You have to be open to diversity. I think the other important aspect of tapping into untapped talent for leaders is to require inclusive leadership successes as a job requirement for those who will lead. And what I mean by that is, and at TIAA, we are going to be doing this, we are going to be adding inclusive leadership successes as a skill set on job recs for our leadership roles. And what we mean by that is we are counting inclusive leadership as something that we will evaluate just like we would the technical skill set that the job requires, because we want a leader that has a track record for developing people equitably, managing teams on a day-to-day basis, best practices, big and small, that makes everybody feel heard and makes everyone feel that their voice is one that is welcomed, that enables everyone to truly come to work as who they are and not try to hide and assimilate. And so once you're done hiring, you have to focus on the experience of the new colleague so that you're really cultivating and maximizing not just their talent, but their commitment to the organization. You want to create ambassadorship for your company through who you hire. And that is going to be based on how they feel in their work environment and based on their development opportunities every day. So inclusive leadership is, I think, the next significant nugget is requiring that as a skill set, not as a nice to have, not as a, oh, we'll see, but really screening for that. Because in 2021, if someone can't say, hey, I was a member or a leader of a business resource group or on my team, you know, I participated in pay equity audits and I looked at my promotions to see, you know, were there some themes and or trends there in terms of who seemed to be doing the best. I took it upon myself to experience what are called majority minority experiences. And that's where people in whatever majority group of whatever diversity dimension applies intentionally expose themselves to what it feels like to be the minority. And again, whatever the diversity dimension may be. So if you're a male, you know, and you join the board of directors for a women's homeless shelter, you are intentionally putting yourself in an environment where you're standing out, you're the male in the room, and you might begin to understand how the only woman on your team at work every day feels being the only one. Mm -hmm. And so gaining a leader who is attempting to gain an appreciation for being the only one by exposing themselves intentionally to that is going to be a better leader because they're going to look around the table at their team at work or virtually, and they're going to understand some of the reluctance or reservation or hurdles that only one on their team again, in whatever diversity dimension may be feeling every day and trying to raise and feed their family in the process. So leaders who are committed to true inclusive leadership practices are those that organizations need because going forward based on every population demographic shift, there is not going to be the option of hiring and leading homogeneous teams you're going to have to be able to lead effectively across significant differences person to person. And you're going to have to be able to do that well because your team ultimately has to deliver. So that's the next thing I would say about what it takes to get the best out of untapped talent. Lastly, I would say that untapped talent needs to see their path forward in an organization. And so 
organizations have to be committed to development and experience and belonging. As I said before, you want your workforce to be your brand. You want them to be your ambassadors. You want them to be your recruiters, frankly. And they will do that for you, not just at a career fair, but through social media, through conversations they may be having. They may be the biggest endorser, influencer for your organization and your organization's ability to find those rock stars of various sorts. And so the way to do that is to create the space at work where they feel invested in, in ways big and small. And so untapped talent really rises to the surface when there is a view that the organization cares and is investing and is willing to take a chance on him or her through sponsorship and stretch assignments and, you know, all those things that organizations can do to say to a person, I believe in you and I want to see what you got. When people feel like they have a shot at it, they will give you the maximum discretionary effort and the maximum loyalty. And in today's war for talent, that really is a differentiator. How do we ensure that diversity and equity stay and inclusion stay centered as essential to good business and that it's not just a movement now, but continues onward? It's not optional for organizations. So at TIAA, my team strategy, our tagline is that we go from insights to innovation. Our impact statement also says that we attract, cultivate, and inspire talent and clients. That doesn't sound like the mission for an inclusion, diversity, equity, and corporate social responsibility program. If I just simply said, I cultivate talent and clients, that sounds like that could be our asset management team. It could be you know, our client relationship team. It could be so many things in the organization. But it truly is the heart of inclusion, diversity, equity, and corporate social responsibility because in today's world, the diversity of experiences and identities, the diversity of geographies, of schools, of degree programs, of life perspectives, it is continuing to evolve and it is demanding acceptance and embrace in every way possible. And so this is not a movement that sort of is erupting and you know, in a couple of years, it'll sort of pass away. No, this is the world in which we're living and, and in which we will continue to live and grow. And so inclusion, equity, diversity, they're all the things that are essential to business because first and foremost, they reflect the workforce. Every company needs a workforce. That workforce serves the company's clients. And you need a workforce that is going to be able to anticipate and engage clients in a way that secures that organization's future success. So it's all about talent and it's all about clients. That's business. Mm -hmm. You have to have a workforce that helps you serve your clients. And that workforce, therefore, needs to reflect your clients your clients are ever more diverse in so many ways. And that means that your talent pool is going to be that also. It's a very easy proposition in that way. Still though, so often the work that I do, sort of the preamble to it is that it's all about values, it's mission, it's heritage, what have you. And yes, it can be all of those things and should be all of those things. At TIAA, it is all of those things. We diversified our board in the 1940s by appointing a woman during that time. And then in the 1950s, an African-American, and we've had the most diverse CEO ranks of any organization. So we really have a legacy of inclusion, diversity, equity, leadership in really profound ways. Mm -hmm. And the success of the organization is evident. So as an organization, that approach to how you cultivate your talent 
and your client helps your talent, your clients be emotionally connected to your organization in a way that leads to business results. So that tagline from insights to innovation means that we use this type of data to draw that connection to business results because we don't want this work and this focus to be viewed as, again, charity or optional or just a statement of values. It really is a statement of business differentiation. Mm-hmm. So when you have inclusive leaders, they really can connect in a way that draws people to the organization, keeps people at the organization, and enables a very standout client experience because you have the strong capabilities of anticipating those needs and serving those needs very well. I'm going to roll it back a little bit. Uh, You had mentioned earlier that you wanted to share how you decided to join U of M, um, but I don't think we've had a chance to hear that story yet. So my path to the University of Michigan is one that is very sentimental. I smile because some of the decisions that we make throughout life, not just when we're younger, but throughout life, are ones where in that moment of decision, you have no idea just how consequential it would be. You're in a fork in the road in your, on your life path. You may not realize it, but if you go left or right or straight or behind, it literally changes the course of your life. So for me, when I was deciding where to go to college, I wanted to follow my high school sweetheart to the engineering school in Flint that he had attended. And that's what I was going to do. Growing up in Detroit, you know, the message to me had always been to get a good job, air quote, good job. And I, you know, anticipated going back home and probably working in the auto industry. I always loved math, my grandmother again, and was, you know, great grades and all of that. So engineering seemed to be right in line with what I should do. I didn't ask the question of what was I passionate about, you know, what really excited me. It was a very responsible decision in the way of, this will enable me to get a a good job. And by the way, I'll be there with my high school sweetheart. Well, my high school counselor mentioned to me that my school, Cass Tech High School in Detroit, will be having on-the-spot admissions and that the University of Michigan and other schools will be coming and that I should go on down because of my grades and my standardized test scores. And in my mind, I'm thinking, well, no, I'm I'm just going to go to the engineering school. And I remember being in the cafeteria on the day that the University of Michigan was at Cass Tech doing the in-school admissions. I was sitting with my fellow cheerleaders. I was the captain of the cheer team. And my co-captain said to me, I thought you were going to go to on the spot at U of M downstairs today. And I said, no, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not going to go. And she said, but you told your counselor you're going to go. And the dutiful person that I am, I said, you know, I did say that I'll go on down. And so I left the cafeteria. I went down to the college resource center and met with the recruiter from university of Michigan. He verified my GPA and my standardized test scores. And we talked some And, you know, I told him that I was going to be going to the engineering school and so forth and so on. And, and through the process that was in place at that time, I was accepted to the University of Michigan. And even then I said, I was not going to go, I going to Flint. (laughs) (laughs) And so, I don't know, a few weeks later, my mother, who is the type of mom that's not a big rules You know, I didn't have a curfew. She allowed me certain freedoms. She trusted me. And so she let me make a lot of decisions for myself. We lived in this small townhouse in the medical center village in Detroit. And the mail came and she, for some reason, opened this letter from the University of Michigan. And it was a four-year scholarship. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) And I was upstairs in my room doing whatever teenagers are doing in their rooms. And she called up the stairs. She said, Corey. And I was in my room, I said, huh, or yeah, or whatever. 
And she said, you're going to U of M. And she went back into the kitchen doing whatever she was doing. And I said, huh? And she (laughs) said, you're going to U of M. And that was the end of it. (laughs) (laughs) So my mother, who I love and I appreciate this time now as a woman, as a 50-year-old, getting to know her as a friend and you know, understanding the complexities of life and the twists and turns and things that, you know, you can't help. She made that decision for me. And I cannot tell you how grateful I am for that moment of direction. And sometimes we need that. I had a wonderful experience at the University of Michigan. I grew I was challenged. I had experiences there that reflecting on it were issues of inclusion and equity. But at the same time, I also had great experiences with professors and friends that was integral for every step since I left Ann Arbor. When I graduated, I didn't want to graduate. I enjoyed school. I had found my rhythm I was a leader on campus. I was starting to identify those things I was enjoying about my course of study. So I look back on those four and a half years, and I'm truly thankful. I was going to go to the University of Michigan for law school as well, but I decided to go to Northwestern because I felt that I needed to leave home, that if if I had gone back to Ann Arbor for law school, that I would have simply gone back home to Detroit. And not that that's a bad thing. I love Detroit, love Detroit. People know everybody in North Carolina where I live now knows I am from Detroit, Michigan and the east side of Detroit, Michigan. But I knew that I needed to leave Michigan to grow and to experience the world in a new way. And so the decision to go to Chicago just four hours away was a decision that exposed me to things that I also find invaluable, a greater diversity for sure, and was a critical point in my life's path as well. So, you know, as I talk about those moments in life where there's a fork in the road and you're making this decision, you have no idea the significance of it. I do count whatever it was in me that made me say I should go to Northwestern instead of going back to Ann Arbor, I do count that as a pivotal fork in the road that is one that I truly appreciate. The thing is, we don't always know when those forks are happening, and it probably is a good thing because you might overthink it. But those fork in the road decisions are ones that change the course of your life. Mm -hmm. And we should embrace those and we should challenge that. What I would say about my life's path is this. I discovered running just as I was approaching 40 and had absolutely no idea what that experience, that awakening would have in my life. I grew from barely being able to run a few blocks to running my first mile to running a 5k and then several 5k's and then 6k's and 15k's and half marathons and now marathons I have run 13 of them and am most proud of having qualified and run the Boston Marathon in 2018 these are things that I don't talk about from the vantage point of just pride but hopefully from the standpoint of inspiration for others because I did not see that in myself I did not see that strength in myself, but way has it shown me what I am capable of doing, the power that I have, the ability to even surprise myself with goals that can be achieved. It's a path, it's an experience that I hope my daughters have seen over these years of them having seen me grow in this way and in this space. I want them to know, just like I want the folks on this call, those who are listening, to know 
what you are truly capable of accomplishing, how you can, in fact, do things that you really could not wrap your mind around just six months ago or a year before, or maybe even yesterday. We have that capacity in us. My daughters have that capacity in them. For some, it may be running. For others, it may be something entirely different. But that sense of energy and light and renewal that comes from finding that space, that place that allows you to meditate and get to a center, and that place that you can go back to to find that center when you really, really need it. I think in life, when you discover that, when you really invest in that, there's really no limit to what you can envision for yourself and, in fact, to what you can achieve. So I really appreciate the opportunity to be selected for the podcast today. I'm so honored to have come back to the University of Michigan, my alma mater, to share some bits of wisdom, I hope. I feel in many respects like I'm still an undergrad. I know that I'm not, but I'm thankful for those years and I'm thankful for the path that it set me on. And I, again, am thankful for your time today. Oh, thank you so much, Corey. You know, talking to you on Tuesday and yesterday, it's all, it's all my honor. Thank you for listening to CEW's podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change. To learn more about this episode or the services and virtual programming offered by CEW+, please visit cew.umich.edu. Here at CEW+, we navigate circumstantial barriers by providing academic, financial, and professional support to help you reach your personal potential. Established to support women through higher education, we lift up women and all underserved communities at the University of Michigan and beyond. Through career and education counseling, funding, workshops, events, and a diverse, welcoming community, we exist to empower. We are CEW+, and we are here to help you reach your potential. The University of Michigan resides on the traditional territories of the three fires peoples, the Ojibwa, Odawa, and Potawatomi. 